We'll be in Philippians chapter 1 as we continue our study through this epistle to the church in Philippi. Philippians chapter 1. And we'll begin by reading verses 27 through 30. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. And in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which ye saw in me, and now here to be in me. So as a reminder, Paul had been wrongly arrested in Jerusalem. Of course, it was all God's will, but the way that the the Jews went about it there were some accusations that weren't true. And long story short, he appeals unto Caesar. He was a Roman citizen, and so now he's made his way to Rome. He's awaiting trial, and he's under arrest here in Rome. And by the grace of God, he's able to be under house arrest, having been sent support He's able to stay in a rented house uh, to do that. And so he's writing these letters. We saw earlier in this chapter how the Apostle Paul had assured the Philippian believers that the things which had befallen him had happened for the furtherance of the gospel. That it was not an accident, that God is in control, and that God knew what He was doing. Amen? And as he considers his fate, he tells them, For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. And he confesses that, hey, I'm in a straight betwixt two. I'm okay dying because I'll be with Christ, and that's far better. But he says, I know that it's needful that I remain here so that I can help others along in their walk. And so now, whether he lives or dies, he gives them the way that they ought to live as Christians in this world, which is what we see in our text tonight. So having taught about a way to die, which is in gain, and and it's going to be a blessed thing when we finally reach glory and be with our Lord and Savior, he says, but while you are here, this is how you ought to live. And so he writes, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Now when you see the word conversation in your King James Bible, it refers to your way of life, not just your manner of speaking but how you conduct yourselves. There are five different Greek words translated into English as conversation, and they all convey the same general meaning. It is your behavior, how you act, how you live, how you conduct your your affairs and your life and your business, your conversation. It is your character as a citizen. And it often is talking about citizenship. In Philippians 3.20, Paul will say, For our conversation is in heaven. Our citizenship is now in heaven as children of God, as believers in Christ. We now belong to heaven. This is just a temporary address for me. Amen? A-P-O-A-P. Amen. Uh, Listen, I'm I'm just here as an ambassador. I'm on orders from my king. My sovereign, that's who I represent. And so I'm just here in a foreign land representing where I belong. 
So it's our citizenship as well, our conversation, where we live. Um, and so understanding that this world is not our home. And since our conversation, our citizenship is in heaven, we are to behave ourselves as proper citizens of our heavenly home. Did you catch that? So we ought to behave as if we belong to heaven. It was faith in the gospel of Christ which enabled us to become citizens of heaven. Therefore, Paul says in verse 27, only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. In other words, Christians, our lives ought to reflect that we are in fact in Christ. This is basic, amen? The phrase used here is, as it becometh the gospel. Now these days we don't use the word becometh as much as it once was used commonly. It once was used regularly to describe how something suited a person. We may say that dress is very becoming of her. Anybody ever said that to somebody? Me neither. Or, you know, that suit is very becoming of him. It suits him. We would also use it in a way of a person's actions are becoming of who they are. Which is to say, that's how I would expect them to act, being whatever they are. You say, well, those are all stereotypes. Well, the stereotypes are there for a reason. It's okay, amen? We're all friends here. We look at somebody's actions, and we say, well, that's how I would expect them to act. Whether it's good or bad. We might uh, see a child do, well, that's how I expect a child to act. As it becometh the gospel. We can sum all this up by saying, don't be a hypocrite. Let it be appropriate, worthy, fitting, and belonging to the character of the gospel of Christ. Let your life be suitable to the gospel. If we say we are in Christ, hopefully people can look at us and go, that is becoming of a Christian. Don't say you're a follower of Christ and then live like the world. Don't use the world's language and the gospel's language. James put it this way, Doth a fountain send forth at the same place sweet water and bitter? Don't be the reason for why people say, that's why I don't go to church. Now, one of the problems we have today is the world rarely sees a demonstration of true Christianity. It's missing. And in many ways, they have no idea how a Christian is supposed to behave and conduct themselves biblically in this world because they've never even been introduced to it. Ever since the seeker-sensitive movement began to take root in American churches, many churches have decided to attract the world to the church by trying to show how they aren't that different than the world. See, we have the same music... We have the same standards. We enjoy the same forms of entertainment. See, we're really not that different, so 
why don't you just come and be a part of us? And so now churches are packed with people who leave no different than when they arrived. Rarely challenged, rarely confronted, and never changed. And of course, instead of church's culture impacting the world, what almost happens in every situation is you're going to end up lower. You're usually going to drop to their standard. And so now the world has infiltrated and impacted the church instead of the church impacting the world. And in an effort to be inclusive over the last 40 to 50 years, what can the world now observe and look at and conclude that's becoming of the gospel? It's not known very often. It's not seen very often. But we are new creatures in Christ. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The Bible says we have now been made partakers of spiritual things. Partakers of God's promise in Christ by the gospel. Partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Partakers of the heavenly calling. Partakers of Christ Himself. Partakers of the Holy Ghost. Partakers of God's holiness. Partakers of the divine nature. Having escaped the corruption that is in this world. You see, there ought to be a moving away from the corruption. Christ's righteousness has been imputed unto us. And we ought to live in a manner that reflects this truth. If we're in Christ, then it should be evident to those around us. Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins. Come out from among them, and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. But our life... So oftentimes, is not what it should be. We should be demonstrating where our citizenship lies. People should be able to draw the conclusion that our manner of life is becoming of the gospel of Christ. By the way, Christian means to be Christ-like. That includes both our speech and our conduct both in word and in deed. When the council saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they heard the message of Christ that Peter had preached, the Bible says in Acts 4.13, and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. (laughs) What a compliment. That'd be nice for people to conclude. The religious crowd understood that it was the Lord who had changed their life in such a drastic way. This is why we're nuts and going to church on Wednesday night. So just embrace the message tonight, amen? Why are we here on a Wednesday night? Hopefully it's because we've been with the Lord. Our lives have been changed. We are not who we once were. And due to an overall absence of godliness in our society, the world may not understand that you've been with Jesus, but we should be living our lives in such a way that those around of us can take note of our life and realize something is different. That's when we inform them with our mouth, the difference is, I'm in Christ. You see, it's not enough just to live right. you still got to speak right. 
If there's no difference between you and the world, then examine yourself to see whether or not you be in Christ. If we tell people their only answer is found in Christ, then shouldn't we have the fruit that demonstrates that in our own life? So what we have to do then is we have to close the gap between what we profess and how we live. They ought to be close. In fact, they ought to be one and the same. We ought to say what we mean, mean what we say. Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Next, Paul says that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. So regardless of if he was released or not, regardless of whether or not he was present with them, he expected them to conduct themselves in a right manner, regardless of if he was there. When our lives are becoming of the gospel, it does not matter who is around, but we will live our lives with integrity in our everyday life. When we were school children, I know I did this, and I'm assuming many of us did, when we had a substitute teacher, we acted a little bit different than we did when our regular teacher was there. It is just natural for people to do that. There's a natural inclination to pull back when our leaders are absent. I've even seen this in the military. The commander's not here today. Everybody go home early. It happens in the church house too. An announcement is made that someone else will be preaching when it's someone we don't particularly want to hear, we play hooky. Amen, I've, I've been there. I'm preaching to myself. Now I have to be here, amen. And I don't like the preacher. And now I hope in this church our attendance numbers don't decrease simply because I'm not here. Because we're not to be faithful to any man. But we are to remain faithful to Christ. Because men will fail you. But Jesus will never fail you. Now that's an example on a small scale, but it also happens on a large scale in churches. I don't know if you've ever observed this, but uh, it's been observable that when a well-known pastor or a beloved pastor dies, the church seems to collapse. Isn't it strange? What happened to the great churches of yesteryear? Maybe a pastor leaves and the church begins to slowly dwindle away. And it's happened far too many times. And so we must stay focused on Christ. So that no matter if somebody leaves, we remain faithful. In my history in this church, I believe this congregation has always weathered these situations very well. We've seen people leave, but I've never seen them take others with them. And then we transition from a 36-year pastorate under Pastor Williams to me as your pastor with very little issues. That is a testament to your faithfulness in Christ, not in a man. And I believe that's probably a testament to Preacher Williams as well. And so Paul doesn't want their Christianity to be dependent on him being there, but he desires for them to have the same diligence regardless of whether he's present or absent. In Philippians chapter 2, in verses 12 and 13, he'll write, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which worketh in you both to will 
and to do of His good pleasure. And, and after stating this in verse 27, He then gives them their charge. He says in the last half of verse 27, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. If we could grasp this, if we could get a hold of this and practice this and live this out as a church, we would be unstoppable in Christ. There would not be one empty seat here tonight. I believe that. If we would just get a hold of this verse, if we lived this verse, we would see an effectiveness like we've never seen before. Is everybody okay? This here is a perfect unity. And it is found by having one spirit, one mind. Now, we are given one spirit when we are born again. The Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence within us. Our spirit is quickened. And we are all in one spirit. We have one mind when we are convinced of the same doctrinal truths. Therefore, we will get the same mind as we begin to be people of the book. Not just on church nights, but throughout the week. That's how we become one mind. And now, the goal then is because we get the Spirit at the moment of salvation, when we are saved, we have fellowship with the Spirit of God then we must learn to walk in the Spirit and not grieve or quench the Holy Spirit. We maintain the same mind by constantly allowing the Word of God to be our authority. People say, I don't like how you handled that and cause all kind of division. What does the Bible say? If it's black and white, book, chapter, verse... It's not wrong. And we ought to be of one mind on those things. And so we're not seeking to bring a new message in here. We've got the message. We're not looking for a new method. We've got the method. It's preaching. What does your church have for kids? Preaching. Well, I think they need more events. Why? You know what event we need? Soul winning. Ha! All right, I'm getting ahead of myself. So we are to rest on the unchanging truths of God's Word. We're not seeking to input our own ideas and opinions. And so what we have to do is we have to endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That's what Ephesians 4.3 says. I could never overemphasize the importance of unity. It's a very powerful thing. And it's critical if there's to be a right spirit and a right mind. Unity. Unity is something we have to constantly check up on to see where our heart's at. To see where our mind's at. To see if we're starting to drift against someone or something when there is true unity, it brings a manifestation of God like you've never seen. I think of water on this point. I was thinking how one drop of rain isn't that big a deal. 
But when a bunch of individual raindrops fall and they begin to gather together in the same place and flow in the same direction, there is a torrent of power that is released. It's unstoppable. One drop of rain can easily be dried away. But if enough raindrops unify together, it can transform a landscape. And we must be unified if we're going to change the landscape. Our message will be much more effective when we are unified in one spirit and one mind. I don't think I need to convince you of this, but let me give you two examples from the Bible. 2 Chronicles 5, 13 and 14 say, It came even to pass, as the trumpeters and singers were as one, to make one sound to be heard in praising and thanking the Lord. And when they lifted up their voice with the trumpets and the cymbals and instruments of music and praised the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His mercy endureth forever, that then the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud, even the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister by reason of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord had filled the house of God. All from unity. New Testament, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire. And it sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And as you know, after preached with great effectiveness, the listeners were pricked in their heart, and 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. The Bible goes on to say that they continued daily with one accord, that they had favor with all the people. And it was from this unity that the world later would be turned upside down. Wouldn't you love to turn the Black Hills of South Dakota upside down? Man, I would. It's going to take unity of spirit and mind. And from this unity, when it's achieved, we are told to stand fast in that unity. Don't lose it. Don't let it go. Don't, bat, don't take one step back. You get unified, you keep it. We are to preserve it. It's a glorious thing to have unity. Don't believe me, think about the times there's been disunity. It's a joyful thing. We all enjoy unity, whether we want to say it or not. Even the most ardent among us that hate people. Don't you love it when your marriage is unified? It makes marriage joyous. But just as soon as AA gets out of line, just trying to lighten it up, Shug. Don't you love unity in the home? It makes being at home together a joyous occasion. Why then shouldn't we seek for unity in the church house? It'll make church gatherings joyous. But when there's disunity, it causes tension that can be felt. You can sense it when you walk in the door, amen? And you can tell the moment, man, that the unity is broken. 
So when we get unity, we need to keep unity, stand fast in unity. Psalm 133.1 says, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity. And we can say from verse 27 that once we are unified, we will naturally rally around a common mission. Notice what it says. Striving together for the faith of the gospel. This means we are laborers together. Remember back earlier in this chapter, we fellowship in the gospel. We are partners in the gospel. We contend together. We are striving Together, we're in this fight together as one body in Christ. In Jude verse 3, it says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. We are to strive together for the faith of the gospel. And this is where some churches are way off track. They are striving together for things outside of the primary mission of the gospel. I don't hear much about this church anymore ever since their, their pastor died. But remember the uh, church down there in Kansas, the Wackos at Westboro Baptist Church? They were the, uh, the ones who were protesting military funerals and all the rest. Their whole platform was what they were against. Anti this and anti that. They were striving together, but not for the gospel. And they ceased to be a functioning New Testament church the moment they put the gospel aside in favor of their agendas. Some churches now have become nothing more than a group of social justice warriors. Some churches are nothing more than an extension of a political party. Some churches have their pet sin and they stand against it, but they do so at the expense of the gospel. Our primary mission is the faith of the gospel. Now take this the right way. But so what if we rally people together to get our guy in office if we don't win souls for Christ? Hey, listen, I... I Ronald Reagan, such a great president. Tell me what revival happened. None. Donald Trump, such a great president. Where was the uh, return to righteousness? Doesn't matter who we get in the office. Listen, we've got to win souls. That is our primary mission. Today we find all these parachurch organizations with all of these various focuses. Many of them are very noble tasks, but are they striving for the faith of the gospel? Now listen, I'm all, I'll give just a little bit more controversy. I'm all for standing for our con uh, constitutional rights. I'll continue to do so, but listen, that is not our primary mission. The gospel existed before the constitution. We are to give the gospel Striving together. Our Lord never did bring a political revolution. He never really did rail against Rome, did He? No, He said, render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar. But instead, He was a great light shining the gospel to a people that sat in darkness. 
And when he came on the scene, he preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're to go into our communities knowing that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to all who will believe. And we're not to get sidetracked on all these other issues that come up that do nothing but cause confusion. 2 Timothy 2.23 But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they do gender strifes. We just want to give the gospel. What do you think about homosexuals? Are they born that way? What do you think about transgenderism? Is it something they're born with? What do you think about those people that live in the unreached parts of the world? You need the gospel. I'm not here to talk about those other things. Help me preach. Amen. That's not what we're here to do. We just need to convince people that they are sinners in need of a Savior. And if every church would just strive together for the faith of the gospel, as this verse outlines, we would see an impact socially and politically. Just imagine if every church had this focus right here. Instead, churches are more concerned with this woke movement nonsense. Whether we're woke enough. I hope y'all are tracking what that means. Whether we are inclusive enough. Churches are too concerned about critical race theory that's being indoctrinated into our children. All these political debates. But real change only comes when at heart accepts Christ as its Savior. That's how hearts are changed. That's how a people are changed. That's how laws get changed. That's how the politics get right. That's how the social aspects of our uh, nation get right. And therefore, we don't go forth striving for social change or rallying people to a political party, but we go forward striving together to see people come to a saving faith in Christ. That's our objective. The gospel is our message. The death, the burial, the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. In closing, we must live the gospel. Spurgeon wrote, quote, If our life is to resemble the gospel, we must shun not merely the grosser vices, but everything that would hinder our perfect conformity to Christ. For His sake, for our own sakes, and for the sakes of others, we must strive day by day to let our conversation be more in accordance with His gospel. End quote. And then we must strive together for that gospel. It's all about the gospel. It's all about Christ. So I ask you tonight in closing, are you living a life that is becoming of the gospel? Does your life suit the gospel message? Are you striving together? Are you laboring together in this church to see people come to Christ for salvation? How many of our cards have you handed out this year? Are you striving together? Only let your conversation be as it becometh the gospel of Christ. Whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs. 
that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray.